All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the small, count, the small catechism, Foundations of Faith. Easy for you to say, Foundations of Faith. Let's begin with an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we just finished the third article of the Apostles' Creed, which means we're going into the Lord's Prayer. Now, there is, there is a little bit of I don't want. I think that this gets overplayed and overemphasized, but it is nice to still have in the back of your mind, and that is, um, you have this kind of framework where the Ten Commandments are given. Now they're given uh, under the assumption that we are baptized Christians, and this is as the head of the the Christian household is going to teach his Christian family, and so the, the commandments are given to us, and. Um, Insofar as they are given, they're given by way of you know, positive direction. This is what to do, this is what not to do, this is what pleases God. Um, and yet, of course, we fail to fulfill those commandments, and so they inevitably end up accusing us and showing us our sin. What follows then, immediately after the, the Ten Commandments, is the Creed who God is and what He's done for us. And as we've seen in the Creed, especially emphasized in the second and third articles, is how how God takes our sin upon Himself in the person of His Son, how those sins are put away forever, how the Holy Spirit calls us to faith in in God's Son and puts and sets Christ before us at all turns, showing showing us our Savior. So you have this kind of very general law gospel framework in the Ten Commandments and the Creed. What follows then is, you know, and what is established by these these Ten Commandments and this Creed, the revelation of God therein, uh, is, is an ability to pray to God. And how do we pray? Well, when the disciples asked Jesus this question, He didn't teach them a, a technique. He didn't say, you know, close your eyes really tight. Hold your fingers just like so, you know, or any, uh, any other such things, you know, pray facing a certain direction or at a certain time of day. He said, when you pray, say. And he actually put the words in their mouth that the disciples are to say to God. And what a beautiful and, and simple and blessed thing this is, that Christ teaches us to pray by actually giving us a prayer. And in praying that prayer over and over and over, we we begin to grow into that prayer and we realize how much is there. So that we can even call upon God as our Father, which is the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes the Lord's Prayer is called the Our Father for that reason. It actually makes a little more sense to call it the Our Father than the Lord's Prayer. Does our Lord pray that God would forgive His trespasses? No. So, he is the sinless Lamb of God, so it makes more sense to think of it as the prayer our Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, and thus to just simply call it the Our Father. But to call upon God as Father is a baptismal reality. It's a baptismal reality. 
if we think of God as our Father just because He created us, and if creation is definitive for His, his fatherhood, well, isn't it also true that He created the amoeba and the tapeworm and the skunk? Ah, brothers and sisters. I mean, if God is our Father by, by way of creation, um, then all creatures are His children and thus our siblings. That is, that is obviously not what we have in mind here. Rather, what we have in mind is, is what Jesus says to Nicodemus, that in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born from above. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And so this, this new birth through the water and the Spirit of holy baptism, this birth from above, this this birth again. This is the way in which we receive God as our Father. So to pray the Our Father, you, you cannot do it without, without praying in the way of baptism and without a, a understanding that baptismal reality. The early church understood this so keenly that, uh, at least for the first few centuries it seems to be the case, that the Lord's Prayer was taught secretly and only to the baptized. Um, you'll notice that it, the Lord's Prayer in the liturgy comes in the service of the sacrament, in the back part of the, of the liturgy, the second service. Um, in, our, in our liturgical structure, where you have the service of the Word, followed by the service of the sacrament, in the early church, everyone, Christian and those interested in becoming Christians, those, those who are maybe already in the catechumenate, who are already in process of becoming a Christian, everyone would come to the service of the Word. And as soon as the service of the Word came to completion, the elders, the ushers, would see to it that only the baptized remained. Everyone else would be asked to go out onto the patio for cookies and punch. The service of the sacrament was only for the baptized. Now, this has lots of advantages. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty significantly closed communion, so you don't have to worry about offending people. Um, but it's in this context that the Lord's Prayer is prayed liturgically because it is a prayer of the baptized. So when we, um, and by the way, by the way, in your 2017 uh, Luther's Small Catechism, if you turn to page 19, Page 19 is what you want. If you're working with another, um, another version, you'll have, to, you'll have to find it on your own. It comes right after the creed. But on page 19, just as we, as we look at this again, it's as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. Our Father, those first two words, presuppose baptism. Presuppose baptism. All right, well... Let's get into the content, and then maybe if we have time, we'll talk about um, s some of the form in which the Lord's Prayer is prayed in Christendom. Of course, it's prayed every Sunday in the divine service, um, but there are other times that it's prayed as well, and, and maybe we'll get into that toward the end. So, page 19, the Lord's Prayer as the head of the family, should teach it in a simple way to his household. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, in terms of structure, the Lord's Prayer, uh, upon looking at it, it has an introduction and a conclusion, and sandwiched in between are seven petitions. So first we look at the introduction on the very uh, bottom of page 19. Our Father who art in heaven. And with the Catechism we say, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that He is our true Father and that we are His true children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask Him as dear children ask their dear Father. All right, so in teaching us these words to pray, God, this is our Lord, our Lord Jesus teaching us to say these words. So with these words, God is tenderly inviting us to believe that He is our true Father. You know, that's the, I think that that's the beauty. We, don't, we didn't pick to call Him our Father. He said, when you pray, pray, our Father. Call me Father. Think of me as Father. And so thus, God tenderly invites us to believe that He is our true Father. We can see the whole family reconstituted here too, can't we? Um, that no longer do we, do we consider primary the earthly father, the earthly mother, the earthly family relationships that we have, but this baptismal family, baptismal relationship, wherein we consider to be God our true father. And we his true children, and thus that sets the tone for the rest of the petitions, that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. In what, in what ways with boldness and confidence? Well, we know who He is. He's our loving Father who will not forsake us. We're His children. In, in the same ways that a, a good father doesn't forsake his children, no matter how badly they mess up, they remain His children, so also with our Father. And so with all boldness and confidence, we can ask Him to hear us. And all the more, Luther points out in the large catechism, because these are the words that He Himself has given us. This is the supreme strength of the, of the Lord's Prayer. What are some of the criticisms of the Lord's Prayer that, oddly enough, spring from within Christendom, <laughs> of all places? Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange that the, that the place in which you find criticism of the Lord's Prayer is supposedly within the Christian church? What, cri what criticisms have you heard? Yeah. It's just mindless repetition. You're not yeah. praying from your heart. Yep, mindless repetition. You're not praying from your heart. Is there, do you think that there's any validity to that? There can be validity to that, sure. Um, sometimes you get the impression from some segments of Christianity that it's like a race to get as many Our Fathers out as you can because each one counts for a certain amount of points, right? So, you know, Our Father, Heart in Heaven, Hallelujah, bing, you know, <laughs> bing, just collecting those merits, collecting those merits. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a major problem. So. Um, maybe, that, maybe that criticism um, has some merit, but is that the way in which... So let me put it to the other extreme. Should we therefore, because it's subject to this abuse, should we throw it out entirely? No. I mean, even that idea, how outrageous <laughs> the our Lord has given us and consider tossing it all together. But many Christians have done just that. And, and here's the... 
if the one error is using it as if it's a, a mechanism to speed through so that we collect more merits, what's the opposite error? We don't ever use that. We only pray from the heart, from the emotions. Okay. Well, your mileage may vary on this, but anecdotally, those who insist upon praying from the heart and praying so freely, if you may have observed this yourself, end up in a very formulaic, predictable pattern of prayer themselves. It's not so much out of heart, it's just that's your rote way of praying. <laughs> and so what you've actually done is exchange the Lord's pattern for your pattern. That's all you've done. So what, what we want to hold on to is, you know, avoiding these two errors. Okay. On the one hand, we're not praying the Lord's Prayer repetitiously, mindlessly, in order to accumulate merits. On the other hand, we're not going to throw it out. We're going to pray it and pray it with our mind and our heart and our intention. And we're going to pray it fervently. We're also going to engage in the Lord's Prayer with a great deal of humility. I think that this is what underlies the other error, that this is just a rote prayer and it's nonsense anyway, is they think it's, there's this, now nobody would ever voice it this way, but they think it's too simple inferior and not really relevant. You know, it's just these seven petitions. You can whip it off in 10 seconds. I don't even know what half of it means. Let's just forget it. That's, the, that's kind of the mentality on that side of things. So we want to embrace this prayer with humility, realizing that if our Lord Jesus himself is teaching it, there's going to be more depth here than we can ever grasp in our entire lifetimes of praying it. And that's true. Those of you who have prayed the Lord's Prayer, you know, decades, maybe even your whole life, you realize that it's like the ocean. You can go up to the shore and play in ankle-deep water. You can say the prayer quite simply. You can ponder the prayer deeply and more deeply still until you're, you're really plumbing the depths and you're seeing it from all different angles and you're seeing as, as Luther and some of the other greats have noticed, um, all of the psalms are contained in this one prayer. All of the psalms are contained in this one prayer. And as you're, if you're praying through the psalms, if you have a, if you have a daily habit of, of praying a psalm and praying the Lord's Prayer and praying a psalm, praying, praying the Lord's Prayer day, on a daily basis, you start to come to see that this isn't just a, a pious sentiment. It isn't just a nice and profound sounding thing to say. It's actually true. Okay, so that's our, that's our view as Lutherans on the, on the Lord's Prayer is um, we use it, we embrace it, and at a minimum once a week in, uh, in our worship, but indeed, as we'll see, more frequent than that in our personal use. All right, did I see a hand or a question? Or, no? Let's move on then through the, uh, through the introduction to the first petition. A petition, of course, when you're, you know, you're asking God to do something for you. Right off the bat, we're going to see that there's more here than meets the eye, and there's, there's right off the bat some, some complexity involved. Hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? Well, hallowed, of course, is the language of holy. So God's name is certainly holy or hallowed in itself. But we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. 
What's, what point is the catechism bringing out here? I mean, it's a simple point, but I think it's, I think it's this. God's not sitting up there in heaven going, oh boy, I hope enough people today pray that my name would be holy so that it is. Right? Oh, we only had 120,394 people praying that my name would be holy. We didn't quite make the threshold. It's not holy today. No, God's name is always holy. It's holy in and of itself. Well, then what are we praying when we pray that God's name would be holy? Ah, that it may be kept holy among us. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. So, how is God's name kept holy then? If, if we're praying that his name would be kept holy among us, how is that his name kept holy? And Luther's going to point out two different aspects. Very simple, but just two fundamental aspects. God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity. How... What if God's name is, what if God's word, I should say, is taught not in truth and purity, but with falsity and distortion? Then what happens to his, what happens to his name? What happens to his identity and reputation? Yeah, it's slandered. His, his reputation is harmed. His name and identity are changed. Does that make sense? So hallowed be thy name, God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity. When the, the name, the identity, the word of God are taught straight, in a straightforward manner to people, then people are receiving who God actually is. We could simply sum this up if we wanted by saying doctrine. Doctrine. God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity. That's doctrine. Here's the second part. And we, as the children of God, see how this flows from the Our Father and flows from our baptismal relationship to Him. We, as the children of God, also lead holy lives according to it. So leading holy lives. How do we lead holy lives? Well, Luther's already set before us the Ten <laughs> Commandments. Okay. So, doctrine and life. Doctrine and life, that's what's in view. Now, similarly, maybe I'll put it this way. How many of you have heard or read of people saying um, that, they, that they like Christ but not Christians? <laughs> I think Gandhi even said something like that very, very famously. And many, many others have repeated it in their own words with their own turn of phrase. Okay. Well, some of that could be, some of that could be, to tell you the truth, that they don't really like God, and the Christians they don't really like are accu accurately representing God, and so, so they're just upset that Christians are spoiling the fun of what they want the Christian God to be, you see. Okay, so to be fair, there's that side of things. But what happens when Christians, gross, children of God, grossly misrepresent their father? There again, his name, his identity, his reputation is besmirched. What's, what's, a, what's an easy target to hit in this regard? Always, always, the televangelists. They're the worst. Everyone knows, well, everyone except the people who go to their church, poor souls. But everyone else knows that they're, that they're scam artists, that they're con artists. And they, I, I mean, here's an example par excellence, just low-hanging fruit, of, of 
you know, people who, quote unquote, children of God who, live in such a way that they defame the name, identity, and reputation of God. Make sense? Okay. Now, we as, we as Christians from time to, I mean, we always fall into sins of weakness, and from time to time we, find we fall into great and manifest and public sins and this kind of thing. Have we automatically scandalized you know, people and uh, besmirched the name of God publicly? Well, in some cases, maybe so. But that is mitigated to this extent. When we acknowledge it's not in keeping with our identity as God's children, when we acknowledge that it's not in keeping with God's identity, we repent and we receive his forgiveness. Well, what hypocrisy is there in that? None. None. And God receives us graciously in that respect. And we ought to protect one another and protect our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from the world's charge of hypocrisy. The charge of hypocrisy against Christians is actually a really hard one to make stick. That is, if you're a biblical Christian. Because as a biblical Christian, we stand every single Sunday and say publicly, I, a poor, miserable sinner, plead guilty of all sins. Right? So, so then someone's going to say, Aha! You Christian, you sinned by doing X, Y, or Z. You're going to be like, Why don't you come to church with me on Sunday morning and I'll tell you that <laughs> I'm a sinner and that I confess against these things and that I want God's absolution and I want to do better and I'm waging war and I'm going to be the first one to tell you what I've done is wrong. Okay, that, there's really no hypocrisy in that. So much of the world's charge that Christians are hypocrites, we just can't even listen to uh, because they don't, they don't have a clue. Christianity is not a purity cult. Christianity is, is people who know that this is who our Father is. We want, as his, as his sons, like Father, like Son, we want to be just like Him. We fail miserably, and we confess that all the time. And that, too, is in, in His Word. That, too, is right doctrine. Okay, so, sorry for that digression. Oh, yes, you have a comment? But I find it more the other way. <laughs> okay, I find the other way is they promote the sin and, uh, differently because that's the biggest thing I, I see is the promotion of it. You know, because they say we were talking about the repetition. I said, well, as long as you repeat it, at least you're learning something that you're doing wrong. You know, if you go through the commandments, you know you're doing it. But I see the other side that if they don't repeat it, they come back like, oh, I didn't know it was wrong. And I'm thinking, no, you know it's wrong, and you're promoting the wrongness. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, fair point. Fair point. Yeah, so to, uh, to backtrack um, and just, just again reassess what we're praying for, hallowed be thy name. God's name is kept holy in these two ways, when the word of God is taught in truth and purity, and we as the children of God lead holy lives according to it. So doctrine and life. That's the, now, who can keep pure doctrine and who can keep a pure life? It's not within human powers. That's we're praying. <laughs> That's we're praying. Grant us these things. Let your name be holy. Make your name holy among us also. Right. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Yeah, makes God's name common and blasphemous among us. Protect us from this heavenly Father. So this is what we're praying. All right, so hallowed be thy name. God's, you know, a name is an identity. It's a reputation. 
We're praying that God would supernaturally and miraculously guard and keep his identity and reputation among us. And he does this by means of granting us right doctrine and holy lives. So that's the, that's the point of this petition. Any thoughts or any questions you have on the first petition? Second petition, thy kingdom come. Well, just as we have to do a little translation in the first petition, hallowed be thy name, hallowed is the language of holy. Here, too, we should do just a little translation. Thy kingdom come would probably be more clearly understood as thy reign come. We're not asking that God would float down some sort of medieval castle with flags unfurled. We're, we're asking that he would reign and rule. Okay? Well, doesn't God reign and rule already even without our prayer? Aha! You know the catechism well. What does this mean? The kingdom or reign of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. Same pattern. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. All right, a couple of points to make here. God reigns through His Holy Spirit. What's the opposite reign or the antithetical reign to the reign of the Holy Spirit? The reign of the unholy spirit, <laughs> right? This is, this is the devil's kingdom, the, the unholy spirit's kingdom. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that God would send his kingdom and reign, invading the kingdom and reign of the devil, all the more, um, and how does he do this? By sending his Holy Spirit so that we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Now that, of course, ties right in with what has come in the first petition. Namely, that um, the word of God be taught in truth and purity and we as the children of God lead holy lives according to it. Now we're praying that God would send his Holy Spirit so that he might reign in us so that these things can be done by his pure grace. All right, that's the second petition. We can think a little bit more deeply. We can think of his kingdom and reigning coming to us uh, personally, a, a prayer for the enrichment and growth of our faith. We can think of it um, evangelistically, that God's kingdom would, would grow um, in terms of our, our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and the people in the world, we can, um, we can also think of it in terms of the final coming of Christ. Let your kingdom come is in finality the case when Christ descends and reigns forever and ever. So there are more, um, you know, I'm just giving you a glimpse into some of the other ways in which we can conceive of this prayer and conceive of it a little bit more deeply, a little bit more broadly. Um, but for our, uh, our purposes here, it's enough to focus on the Holy Spirit and faith in His Word and godly lives lived in accordance with His Word. 
again, beyond our power. Thus, we're praying that God would do these things in us and through us. All right, ready to go on to the third petition? Okay. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. So again, it's not like God's up there like, oh boy, I hope enough people pray so my good and gracious will can be done today. It sure wasn't yesterday. Um, no, it's going to be done regardless, but we're praying that it may be done specifically among us. How is God's will done? God's will is done when He breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name, first petition, or let His kingdom come, second petition. So here the devil comes out explicitly in view, along with the world that he controls and, and our sinful nature which he controls. The meaning continues, and when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. All right, so just like with the petition where we say, thy kingdom come, well, what is prohibiting his kingdom or his reign? Ah, the reign of the evil one. All the more explicit here, thy will be done. Well, what would be inhibiting or what would be in opposition to God's will? Now we know the will of the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. And so when we pray, let thy will be done, we're praying a really kind of dangerous prayer, actually, in many respects, but that God would break and hinder every evil purpose of the devil. Well, that sounds nice. The world, that's good too. And my own sinful nature. Ouch! Here we pray again. <laughs> we pray against ourselves. We pray against ourselves. That God would break and hinder every evil plan and purpose that is within me. Um, and, and thus then, positively, he doesn't just negatively break and hinder, but he positively strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. So again, what, what is the goal of life viewed from this petition? Um, simply to keep faith in his word until we die. That's his good and gracious will. Now, of course, as you know, thy will be done also branches out into much more deep theology, much more deep uh, and challenging prayer. You can think of St. Paul praying three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, and God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. If we want to even go a, a couple fathoms or two deeper, we can go to our Lord Jesus praying the night in which he's betrayed, after he's instituted his supper in the garden, praying, if it be thy will, let thy cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. Real deep watermark in terms of, uh, in terms of this petition. So um, I simply bring that up to show you how, how these things can become very deep very quickly. Um, 
but are also just so wonderfully simple that little children can pray them and, and God hears their prayer and answers. And, and they can pray with understanding. Okay, what do we notice in these first three petitions? What are, what are they about? What's the, I don't mean this in a technical sense, but what's the, what's the subject? What's the center and focus? Yeah. God. Right, God. Yeah, God and the things of God. Here's the problem number one of, with ex corde prayer. Not that there's anything wrong with ex corde prayer, but when people say no to the Lord's Supper because ex corde, out of the heart, spontaneous prayer is the only real prayer. How many ex corde prayers do you hear that begin with petitions central to God and the things of God and the interests of God? Anecdotally, my experience, pretty darn few. Pretty darn few. Um, there's usually some nominal praise given followed by petitions that I want or that we want. Yeah. So the most fascinating thing about this is God really, you know, through Jesus and through Jesus teaching this prayer, God really profoundly reorients us. And I love this. Sometimes, sometimes just the first, the very first petition will snap my mind and my perception into an entirely different place. That's why we should always pray this first thing in the morning. But um, hallowed be thy name. Immediately puts God at the center of the world and puts his things as the most important. And that is so, in a sense, in a sense, like yeah, that's a, that's a blow to the old Adam and the sinful ego within us. It's also gloriously freeing to the new man because it's like, oh yeah, Oh yeah, I'm not the center, nor are my problems the center. Nor am I to, to live or think or conduct myself this day as if me and my problems and my needs were the center. I mean, I think, I think sometimes human beings are basically like, you know, if you look down on the earth, you'd see billions of little black holes spinning around just sucking all the time. Just, just sucking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor me. I need more. I need this. I don't have that. Ah, me, 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 me. Just. And the Lord's. And, and we, of course, we have sinful natures. We fall into that too. Just sometimes the very first line of the Lord's Prayer snaps you right out of that and you go, oh my gosh. God, hello, God is the center of the universe. I'm somewhere way off here on the periphery. He loves me. His light is shining upon me, but He's the sun. <laughs> in this solar system, not me. He's the sun and his bright light is shining. And just seeing my life and seeing my vocation in that light changes everything. And so it's a huge blessing that Christ gives us here um, by giving us the first three petitions. They all have to do with God and the things of God. Absolutely set free from our egotism here um, in praying this way. Okay, but then there are, there are some Christians who, and I've, I've met some who very piously say, you know, Pastor, I, I, haven't, I haven't prayed for a single thing for myself in two decades. You know. Okay, well then, then I, it's hard for me to answer politely, but it's like, have you not prayed the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> because the fourth petition is what? Give us this day our daily bread. It's not as if our needs are important. It's not as if it's impious for us to have needs or talk to God about our needs. 
And that's the second reflection, is, is once we've covered the three petitions in regard to God, we turn to ourselves and to our neighbors. And that's the, really the, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh petitions. So um, the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. This is such a profound, such a profound statement. <coughs> Give us this day our daily bread. The, the main point according to the catechism is that when we pray this, that we would realize that everything that we have and that everyone else has comes from God. That in and of itself will change your view on the world. It will absolutely, like if you let that soak into different areas of your perception and thinking, it'll change everything. I mean, so much of, so much of our natural default is competitive. This is what I've got, this is what I've earned for myself, this is what I'm making, this is what so-and-so is making, I work harder, I'm smarter, I should be getting more, I don't know why they're spoiled and entitled and, you know, and... Like, you know, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. We're constantly doing this merit thing. Even if we, even if on Sundays we're good Lutherans and we say, hey, we don't believe in merit, we reject it. We're always doing this merit thing. Hey, I deserve more. She deserves less. Yeah, he's such a scoundrel. I can't believe. Okay, so what what does give us this day our daily bread do for us in this respect? Well, it changes everything. God gives daily bread to everyone. That is, he gives us everything we we have in need. And that's coming next. What's meant by daily bread? You're going to see that it's everything, right? Food, drink, clothing, household, shoes, all the rest. Okay? So, So God gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this. This This is chiefly a prayer for revelation, for eyes to see the world as it is, not through the distorted lens of our sinful competitiveness and merit-based ideology, which is frankly all wrong, rather to see it all as God's graciousness. So a guy's really smart, who gave him his brain? A guy's really industrious, who gave him that ability? A guy's got a great position, who gave him that position? You've got in and out on your table, another guy's got sushi, it's, it's all the grace of God, all right? So, so this, is, this utterly transforms the world, and we can begin to see it as, as grace everywhere. Now, just, just to kind of drive home the point further, look, look what comes next. What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body. Because it's not just bread, of course. It's everything we need. So, such as food, drink, Clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife. Don't you love this? I, I love this because, again, this, this cleanses me of some of my Americanism. You know, it, notice, how, notice how we're not praying for, like, like, a super attractive spouse, a super attractive husband or wife, you know. Um, really, really academically successful and driven children. Workers who will work 60 hours a week and never complain because they just love the company so much. Uh, we're not, um, and, then, and then look what else. Uh, I mean, rulers who are going to change everything by their policies and legalize and legislate us into the promised land. 
I know. Look at look what word is used here. Devout. Devout. Over and over. Devout husband or wife. Devout children. Devout workers. Devout and faithful rulers. So what, is, what does devout mean? To be in devotion to God. To be devout toward God. So that is the highest that is the highest gift and blessing of God. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, if you want daily bread, just very concretely, where are you going to get it? The bakery. The bakery? Fair enough. Yeah. So where's the bakery getting it from? The farmer. Yeah, the farmer. And the farmer's got to have fertilizer, and he's got to have water, and you know, on and on you go. And what you see really quickly is that to just, you know, eat that little, that little crust of... Uh, of, of bread in your house that you pulled out of the cabinet. Uh, how many people are behind that, that piece of bread? And you have to have, I mean, behind like all the actual mechanisms of doing it, you have to have a, a functioning economy and country and defending your borders and all of the, I mean, it's all there. You can't have bread without all these other things in place. So it's all tied together. And so so what are we praying for then? Not only for the stuff, but for all the hands and people involved in providing the stuff. And there the highest thing we can ask for and the highest gift that God can give in this sphere is that we'd be surrounded by devout people. Devout people. People who are faithful to God and who are going to do the right thing at their own cost. Devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers. And look, where did the... Where did the you know, so often, so often we've talked about the left-hand, right-hand kingdom distinction. Um, the left-hand kingdom being the civil sphere and the right-hand kingdom being the ecclesiastical sphere. Too often we interpret this in the way of America's separation of church and state. And we get all snaggled up. This right here is enough to uh, divest us of that misperception. Because we are actually praying for devout and faithful rulers. The Catechism teaches us to pray for Christian rulers. Yeah, that's what it teaches. Along with miracle of all miracles, good government. It has happened from time to time. Good government. And then also good weather, because you're not going to have daily bread without good weather. Peace. Have you ever... <laughs> There's some great proverbs in this respect. It's like without peace. I mean, you can have like this lavish feast set out before you, but if you've got no peace, what does it taste like? Ash and anxiety. <laughs> it doesn't even taste. It's just empty fuel, meaningless. It might even taste just bitter and nasty, especially like if you have no one to share it with. So, yeah, you can... It's more than just... It's more than just... Um, the stuff, it's the ability to actually enjoy the stuff, to have peace. Health, self-control. I mean, otherwise daily bread turns into a curse if you eat too much daily bread. Yeah, I was in a doctor's office once and they had a gigantic poster and on this whole poster it just said, eat less bread, period. Now, so self-control, we're praying for self-control. Good reputation. Good friends. Faithful neighbors and the like. Everything we need to support this body in life. 
That's what we're praying for in, in daily bread. So very simply, that's what's laid out for us here. Now, um, Luther intends this catechism as, again, just to be taught by the head of the household in a simple way. And I'll simply point that there's a way in which to view our daily bread in this petition even deeper. And that is to have in mind what our Lord says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And so we can see uh, very profoundly and perhaps even more simply, it's absolutely appropriate to think of give us this day our daily bread. Give me Jesus. He is the bread of life. He's the true bread from heaven. Apart from him, I can't live. I would rather have Jesus today than, you know, wonder bread. <laughs> if I've got a pick, right? I'd rather have, I'd rather have um, the word of God um, because man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So give us this day our daily Jesus. And indeed, the, the language here, we're getting a little more deep than the catechism, obviously, but I just want to show you that there's some of this here. The language here is very interesting and kind of some, some challenging Greek grammar. And many, of the, many in the early church took this to be a reference to the Lord's Supper. That the, and, and not necessarily that the Lord's Supper would be received every single day, though that was certainly the case in some places, um, but that we would pray that God would continually provide us with His Son and His Son manifest in the Lord's Supper. And that true righteousness that we receive from Him, and thus, if we, and thus, all other, all other meals and gracious gifts from God flow from that meal and gracious gift of God, which is central. Um, another beautiful part of this prayer, just while we're on it, give us this day our 401k. Give us this day our retirement in. For me, I think, oh, well, it's changing every day now. It's, I think it's like 30. How many years now? I don't know. How's the economy doing? My retirement date keeps bouncing forward, I've noticed. It's like 65, then I have 67, and I think it's projected that I'll get to retire at 102. <laughs> so what's the, what's the point I'm bringing out here? Um, well, we find ourselves in difficult circumstances because we're living past our use and past our ability to, to live and work. And um, we're needing to provide for ourselves. And so that sets up this whole 401k retirement plan type thing. Um, but we should, even though we engage in that out of prudence and to some degree necessity, we ought to have a really balanced and somewhat cynical approach toward that ourselves, being really cautious, because that so quickly becomes an idol and so quickly becomes a great distortive principle that the Lord's Prayer um, can jog us out of. Give us this day our daily bread. The, the most healthy mindset for us. I'm, I'm not saying stop contributing to your 401k. Contribute to your 401k to put on an automatic whatever, but then don't ever look at it and don't ever think about it, if you can. This isn't good financial advice, but Jesus never gave good <laughs> financial advice. His financial advice was give it all away. Um, but we, we are healthiest. We are healthiest, this prayer teaches, when we're considering our daily needs and God meeting those daily needs. We are meant to be daily creatures. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. A wise man said that. <laughs> His name was Jesus. And 
you know, this also works very well, very well when your spouse is, you know, talking to you about some, some stressful thing that's, that's, you know, maybe on the weekend, you can say, sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. <laughs> Try that at your own risk. Um, the, uh, but but this, is, this is really the point. I, the point is we live healthiest when we live in a, in a way where we say, what do I have today? This is a gift from God. I'm going to receive it as a gift from God. Go to sleep, wake up the next. What do I have today? It's a gift from God. That is a super healthy way to look at, look at life. It's a super healthy way to detoxify the stress, worry, anxiety, competition, all the rest, and to receive it as a gift from God. Um, and it can really change the way we live. So um, give us this day our daily bread. We can also emphasize that word daily. All right, next week, let's simply pick up, ooh, next week is Easter. We're not going to pick up. In two weeks, in two weeks, we will pick up with the fifth petition and we'll close out the Lord's Prayer. The Lord be with you.